The contents of this podcast are provided for general information and educational purposes only and do not constitute investment, accounting, legal, tax or other professional advice. Welcome to the Money Magnet Podcast, helping you attract and keep a fortune that counts with co-hosts self-made money magnet Steve McKnight and esteemed journalist Rowan Wen. Hi and welcome to the Money Magnet Podcast. I'm Rowan Wen and I'm once again joined by my mate and money expert, Steve McKnight. Thanks, Rowan. I hope the listeners are enjoying the podcast. We'd like now to return to the book Money Magnet and start a deeper conversation about it and what I wrote and why I wrote it. Indeed. Well, the whole podcast idea was based on this book and it's good to return to the primary source, I guess. And we're going to start at the very beginning today with the preface which is short, but very interesting, I thought. And it kind of gets to the whole point. Why did you write this book? Because you've written a couple of bestsellers previously. And once you've got that win, you went again anyway. What was the thing behind that? Yeah, I didn't expect that I would write another book. And there's a lot of effort that goes into writing a book. And these aren't ghostwritten. I sit there, tap, tap, tap with a couple of fingers and punch it out on the keyboard. I know, I've seen you. It takes forever. It does. It takes forever. And so much time and effort and life goes into it. A lot of thought. A lot of the things you write, Ro, don't end up in the book. They end up on the cutting room floor as you try and keep it pretty tight and pretty interesting. But this all started off with a dream some years ago. So the actual preface headline is how this book came to be, and it started off with a dream on the 13th of July, 2006, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Okay. So talk about the dream, because it's kind of an unconventional way to start a book. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it is. And what's funny about this dream is, as you may know, I'm colorblind, red, green, colorblind, but I dream in color. I don't necessarily know what the dreams are, but I've had dreams where I see things and there are statistics. I can't quote them to you. i got to jump in here. Hang on. You're colorblind, but you're dreaming color. How do you know they're colors? Because <laughs> I know what black and white is, right? Okay. But I don't see and perceive color like other people, but I know I see color contrasting to black and white. Got it. So in this dream, what was remarkable was, first of all, it's the only dream I've ever had that I woke up crying, tears streaming down my face and somewhat dumbstruck. I was just sort of lying in bed and in a bit of shock and in a bit of awe. And the book talks about what the dream is. We don't need to go into that. It was almost like a calling that I felt called to do something. And the sad part, if there's a sad part, is it took a long time to do something about it. It was a God dream though, right? So it was, it was actually, I mean, you, you obviously wear your faith on your sleeve and that's cool. But was that hard to talk about in the opening of the book? Yeah, well, it was a God dream. And it's not like I've had dreams like it since or before. It was a dream where I felt like I encountered God and I encountered God as sort of like a color and a majesty and this awe and reverence. And yeah, I do. I wear my my faith on my sleeve because it's the context by which I live. Mm. And in this dream, I felt that God was calling me to write a resource that helped people understand money and be more empowered around money. Now, to start a book where you talk about a dream you had when you encountered God, obviously for people who are atheists and people who don't have a faith, it's like, oh, great, this is another God book, is it, or something like that. But it's not designed to be so far. It's just designed to give the reader 
the understanding of why I wrote this book when I said I wasn't going to write any more books. Mm. The way I read it, it wasn't like you were sort of doing a Hillsong and trying to use religion to make money or anything like that. It was almost like you sort of said, listen, you need to know who I am before I start telling you the stuff that I know, which I thought was kind of cool, actually. I respected that. It was good. But what did Wiley think, the publishers? They weren't sure. They didn't say no. They didn't tell me that I couldn't do it because, again, they picked up on what I think you just said, Ro, which is quite insightful, that in order to trust the author and in order to understand where the author comes from, you sort of need to know the author's motives. And it's a good legitimate question, you know, Steve, why are you writing another book? And how does this book fit into the other books that you've written, which have traditionally been about real estate investing? And the answer to that question is that it's almost like a prequel, because I was finding that a lot of people were wanting to invest in real estate out of a money problem. How do I fix my money problem by investing? And really what I wanted to say to people is you can't invest out of a money problem. You've got to figure out what your money problem is and solve that first. So what do people get wrong there? Well, they get wrong there. The use and abuse of money over time leads them to a situation where they go, I need more money. So it's like an earning problem when really what they've got is probably a spending problem. They're spending all the money they earn and more. So by earning more money, it leads to more spending. Where really what we need to do, and this is the theme of Money Magnet, is learn how to attract more money, but also keep the money that we attract. Right. So the dream happened in 2006, but you've only just written the book. What happened? A lot of life, and including COVID, of course. But it was something that I always knew I wanted to do. But as time passed, it became harder and harder to do it because there was more and more time between the dream and not doing it. It was almost like guilt set in. But Steve, surely God told you to do it. Why didn't you do it? <laughs> it's like, well, he did. But the distance between having that vision and doing something about it grew. And so there was almost like a stubbornness or a rusty hinge or a joint that stopped moving because it stopped being used. And it wasn't until I had this brush with skin cancer that I really reminded myself, well, I better do something about this because time's running out. So when you say God, right, I would probably say fate or the universe or a feeling, you know, like we all have, I guess, if you're lucky, you have the odd moment that feels a bit more than just earthly. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Or do you feel the sort of voice of God, biblical kind of stuff? I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, even religion, I was out with a friend the other night and he said, Steve, you strike me as someone who's quite religious and I never expected that from you. I'm not sure why he didn't. It must have picked something up. But I said to him, his name's Adrian, I said, Adrian, I'm actually not religious. I just have a faith. I have a faith in the God as described in the Bible. To me, religion is often the way that people politicize faith. It's about power, as I see it. Power. Whereas I'm not into that. I'm in you know, something in the Bible that is interesting because there's 2,000 years of history in it. What is it and what can I learn from it? That's where I approach it from. So what do you see people doing wrong in terms of their actual approach to money and not taking action? What's going on there? Well, they don't have a compelling reason to take action. And so the days drift into weeks, drift into months. And certainly I can appreciate that because I lived life that way. I look at- Well, look at the book. It took you 16 years. Yeah. And I worked as an accountant for nine years. Mm -hmm. And at the end of nine years of accounting, I had nothing to show for it. Yeah. And then I got into investing and within five years, I'd become financially free. So what was the difference between nine years of accounting and going to work and five years of investing? To me, it's what I call a purposeful plan. I had a reason for doing something. I had a calling to do something, which was more than just go to work each day. And that calling and that empowerment is what I call being in gear versus being in neutral. Yeah. And for those people that don't have it, they just go to work and then they say to themselves, well, I deserve it. 
they fall for the marketing three card trick, which is if you're unhappy with your life, putting more stuff in it is the way that's going to fix it. But it doesn't. It doesn't matter how much we have because it doesn't meet the deepest need of our soul. We've got to find something bigger than ourselves to tap into. It reminds me of a line from my favorite songwriter, George Michael, obviously, about the road that I've walked upon has filled my pockets and emptied out my soul. And it's true. You can stuff your pockets full of cash, but it doesn't always feed the soul. And, and that seems to be the bit that needs to be nurtured. Whether you get it from reading the Bible or listening to music, you might have your favorite artist. I think there's something that resonates in the mist of the fog. There's a voice. There might be that intuition. But occasionally, if we choose to listen to it, it'll give us direction. But sometimes we get so busy in the hubbub of life that we stop listening and we almost walk around in a fog. What do we know and what do we think we know? We often run around living life like the things that we think are facts when they're really just opinions. I think I'm too dumb to invest. I think I'm not smart enough. Self-defeating. The baggage that people have put on us Mm. in many ways or that we put on ourselves. The voice of others often, isn't it? Indeed. What I like to try and challenge people is differentiate between what you think and what you know and try and turn more of the things you think into things that you know. Mm -hmm. Hence the book. I think I want to be financially empowered. Well, that's a starting point. That's a thought. How do you turn a thought into an action? Well, read the book and start applying some of the things that speak to you in the book. The saying is that the teacher comes when the student's ready. So once again, there'll be things in the book that are ready for you at this point in your life. And that's why you can sometimes read a book or hear a song years after you read it or heard it for the first time. And there's something else that speaks to you because you're at a different point in your life. So after nine years of accounting... What gave you the courage to say, bugger it, I'm going to try this? In the first book, Nought to 130, I said, I looked up the corporate ladder and all I could see is the butt of the guy in front of me and I didn't like the view. I stopped and instead of drinking the Kool-Aid about life would be happier if you're a partner in an accounting firm, I just decided that I don't want this fantasy. I don't think that spending my life working as an accountant and earning a lot of money and spending a lot of money is where I want to be. I want to do something different. I want a different outcome. Did you feel that you were buying into somebody else's dream and somebody else's life and saying, you'll be happy if you just copy me, but it didn't feel right for you, didn't fit right for you? More so into someone else's expectation, your parents' expectation of you. How many people are listening to this, living their parents' dream for them rather than their own dream for themselves? My dream for you was to be a doctor. I put you through school. You owe me a career as a doctor. It's Mm. like, well, that's your vision for my life. What's my vision for my life? And I just look at my dad and God bless him. He worked really hard. He supported the family, but he was gone at seven in the morning, didn't get home till seven at night, worked Mm. decades in the one job and said to me later on in life, Steve, I wish I had have taken more risks earlier. But because I had a family and because I had commitments, I felt locked in to doing what I had to do. Well, that's a great role model for me to learn from. Okay, Dad, you did that. You said you had this regret. I don't want the same regret. Reading the book, though, you kind of walk away with the feeling that the biggest risk is actually not doing something because you're guaranteeing you're not going to get the outcome you need. Yeah, I often say people live their own worst case scenario like it's their only case scenario. Which you can't blame them. There are a lot of reasons why people feel the pressure and they're self-defeating and they've been told by their parents to be scared of the world and all that sort of stuff. I get all that. But this is about breaking that thinking pattern, isn't it? Yeah. What's really at risk? I looked at what I was doing in accounting, Ro, and I said to myself, self, if you try something different and it doesn't work, where do you end up? And the answer was I end up back doing accounting. 
So it wasn't really anything at risk because I was already at the worst point I could possibly be selling my time for money. So what else about accounting taught you how to invest? Yeah, well, people often say, Steve, surely your accounting training was a blessing when it comes to your investing. But you've got to understand when you do accounting, there's a secret operation they do before you get to be called an accountant where they anaesthetize you and, and remove that part of your brain. I was going to say, is a lobotomy? Is that the operation? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. And they take that bit boom, of your boom. brain out where you take risks because you, by an accountant, have a very safe, risk-averse nature. And for a guy who threw his career in and then went and bought hundreds of properties, that doesn't sound like the sort of thing someone who is an accountant would do. So in many ways, it helped with understanding the numbers, but it also hindered because it became harder to take those risks because of the training. You've been taught to play a safe game. That's right. And everyone has a reason why they can't do something. It might be my maths teacher, in your case, said that I wasn't good at maths. I'm not smart enough to understand figures. Or in my case, they train the risk out of you. Or it could be struggle with the language. Or I don't have enough money. Or people get fixated on the reasons why they can't do something, not the reasons why they can do it if they can do something different. So how then would you encourage people finally to move forward and actually try and take a bit of action? One step at a time. You know, the old, the way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. And yes, where you want to end up might be so far removed from where you are right now. It might seem impossible. But if you take small steps over long periods of time, you can actually travel a great distance. And that's the secret, I think, to large change over your life. Don't worry about doing something radical overnight. Just worry about moving in a direction and letting time get you there. Brilliant chat, mate. And that was just the preface, by the way. So next time, let's talk about the introduction. (laughs) Well, the preface is only a couple of pages. And if we've managed to get that far in just a couple of pages, imagine what's ahead. It's exciting. Let's do it. Talk soon. Bye, Rod. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Money Magnet podcast. If you have questions or would like to provide feedback, then please send an email to podcast at moneymagnet.au.